back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. I'm here today with uh, my co-host Greg Galls, as always. Although we are not in historic downtown Bryan today. Yep, we have mixed up our location and we are recording from the Bush School today. A couple of things to note. Um, this will be our last episode uh, for this season, so for this semester. We're going to take a little bit of a break over the summer and plan a bunch of fun, exciting events for the fall. We'll be updating the Facebook page and the website as we come up with that information, and we'll bring, be bringing you uh, more events in the fall. So don't uh, don't lose us, don't leave us completely behind, we'll be checking back in with you in the fall. Today uh, we have a, a very wonderful guest who's agreed to sit and chat with us for a while. Uh, it's Professor Dr. Valerie Hudson. She is a professor uh, here at the Bush School with uh, Greg and I. She holds the George H.W. Bush Chair and runs the program on Women, Peace, and Security. Um, and we're very honored to have her with us today and looking forward to talking with her about her research. Welcome, Dr. Hudson. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, I like to do first as part of the discussion is let you define yourself. So just broadly, if you would tell the audience or the listeners um, what your interests are and how uh, what you kind of just a big picture overview of the type of work you do. Uh, well, I have, uh, I kind of wear two hats in terms of my career. Um, I started out in the field of foreign policy decision making, and I still work in that field today. Um, but uh, somewhere around the mid-90s, uh, I began looking at uh, the relationship between the security of women and the security of their nation states. Uh, and so I'm probably, well, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm known for both of those kinds of of um, uh, research. And what, uh, which topic do you spend most of your time on now? <laughs> well, so, uh, currently uh, this past semester has been almost equally split because I finished the book manuscript for uh, a big data analysis project we did for the Defense Department on women, peace, and security. But I also did the third edition of my textbook for foreign policy analysis. So I've kind of spent uh, the time 50-50 this semester. That makes for a busy semester. It was a ridiculously busy semester. And I just mentioned you were doing a lot of traveling and giving talks as well this semester as well. Yes, I was the Vice Chancellor's inaugural visiting distinguished fellow for Australia and the world at the Australian National University in Canberra at wow. the beginning of March, which was an exceptional experience. And then my travels have also taken me to Abu Dhabi and Toronto this semester. It's a very, a lot of varied places. I want to come back. A lot, a lot of frequent flyer miles. <laughs> yeah, a lot of time in airplanes. Uh, I want to come back to maybe uh, some questions about your new book um, and uh, the manuscript that you have. But before that, uh, one of the things I know you do here at the Bush School is the program on women, peace, and security. And so I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit about that program. I know that you have some outreach, some research, and some teaching components. And so I just thought it would be interesting for the listeners to hear more about that program. Absolutely. Um, women, Peace, and Security is a term that was coined around the turn of the century in the year 2000 when the UN Security Council actually passed Resolution 1325 that said, duh, <laughs> women are affected by war. Women are affected by conflict and insecurity. So 
you should include them. For example, if there's peace talks, there should be women at the table. If you are reconstructing a society after a conflict, women should be part of the planning and so forth. So it's the idea that uh, women and national security should not be seen as being on two different planets, but as, as having an integral connection. And so we have a, a curriculum. Our students can actually have a concentration in women, peace, and security. There's a special capstone that is devoted to women, peace, and security. The client is the State Department's Office of Global Women's Issues. Uh, we also have a, an annual symposium uh, where we bring together uh, luminaries in the field of women, peace, and security, um, not only from Texas, but from around the country and around the world. And then lastly, we have a research component. We have the Women's Stats Project and Database. And uh, six of our Bush School students are involved in any uh, particular year with uploading data to the database, scaling the information, and participating in research projects. What kind of data do you collect? What types of things kind of highlight the relationships between women, uh, peace, and security? What does that database look like? Well, the, the database itself has over 350 variables. So if you wow. want to know anything about the status of women in a particular country, you just ask us and we can probably tell you. Uh, and our coverage is pretty good from 1995 on. So we have over 20 years worth of data. We now have, have information that has disappeared completely from the web. And really? we're the ones who have immortalized that data. So it's really kind of an outstanding contribution. In terms of um, you know particular things that we're looking at now for the data analysis project that we did for the Defense Department, we concentrated on a series of 11 variables that were not very well captured in the existing literature and created some of the actual first ever scales on these 11 aspects. So for example, prevalence of patrilocal marriage, no scale existed. We came up with the very first. And uh, so those scales are the ones that I've been using this semester to write this book. Maybe maybe tell the listeners what how you define patrilocal marriage. Oh, patrilocal marriage is when a newlywed couple goes to live with his family, uh, his extended family, and that's very prevalent in the Middle East, of course. I was in Abu Dhabi recently, and of course, it's very patrilocal there. In fact, the the great tribes uh, have these huge compounds where you know every son and his wife and children are living in uh, an extension of the compound. And then they just keep growing outward to become little mini towns, if you will. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. And some of the tribes actually have their own islands. So they have an entire island uh, for um, their family. It's, it's really amazing. That's really cool. So when you, over, uh, over time, looking at some, you know, these, these variables of women, peace, and security, maybe, I think it'd be interesting to know what is a, like a, a 10,000 foot view of the most important variables interacting here. So is it that if we bring women into the, the discussions, if we, if we have women as representatives at kind of the legislative level, it really helps uh, uh, increase peace and security in the, in the nation. What are some of the strongest findings you found through this kind of research agenda? Well, we found that um, there's a prior step before the representation of women can really have an effect. 
Um, one of the easiest ways to see this is through what we call the Rwanda paradox. Uh, because of the genocide in Rwanda, Rwanda now boasts the highest percentage of women in the legislature in the world. Something like 63% of the Rwandan legislature is female. And yet, I can assure you that if you had your choice, you would not want to be a woman in Rwanda because there are still many um, day-to-day oppressions, some of which are very severe, that constrain the lives of Rwandan women. So it's not simply the legislature, and that's the work that we did for the uh, Defense Department, was digging down to sort of see what the particular mechanisms of subordination were that kept women in a straitjacket. Because what we found is that when you undermine the security of women, you've undermined the security of your entire country. Uh, we did a comprehensive data analysis looking at nine different dimensions of national security. Everything from the more conventional conflict, terrorism, governance, to indicators of economic performance, economic rontierism, environmental preservation, demographic issues, health issues, and, and so forth and so on. And what we found across all those nine dimensions is that the strongest, the most significant, the most determinative variable in large and multivariate analysis was in fact how tightly constrained women were within their own homes. Uh, so things like patrilocal marriage, things like cousin marriage, things like polygyny, things like inheritance rights and property rights, uh, all of these things work together. Divorce laws, family laws, personal status laws, uh, to keep women in a very subordinate position within their households. And that has cascading effects outward for the entire society. So the more the more the policies within a country oppress women uh, and their opportunities has a detrimental effect in this in in the multivariate analysis towards just the security of the country. Like not mm -hmm. only is it would maybe good liberals argue that it's the right ethical moral thing to do is have gender equality. Actually, from the nation state's own self interest, mm -hmm. it uh, it benefits greatly from giving uh, being less oppressive or more supportive or more equal across genders. That's true. In fact, if, if you wanted to curse your nation, the most effective way to do so is to subordinate the women of that nation. You will have all sorts of negative effects as a result of doing so. But I want to hasten and say it's not necessarily the policies, right? If, again, think of the Rwanda paradox. If you look at simply sort of the top-level policies, all right, you're not going to see the action. For example, in many nations, women have the equal right to inherit. Well, it turns out when you actually look at what's happening on the ground, that's not happening at all. Mm -hmm. It's not happening at all. So you need measures that actually look not at, at just what the law is, but also whether that law is in fact enforced on the ground or whether there's a completely different situation that describes the reality. And that's why it took us four years and a million and a half dollars to <laughs> actually come up with these measures that would tell us what was really going on. What are some of those, uh, how did you go about collecting some of those? I mean, that's kind of, that's really fascinating that you have the data like from the implementation on the ground, not just a coding of the different policies and whether or not they exist. So just for my own sort of nerdiness about databases, how did what methods did you use to gather? Is it through like surveys? Is it through measuring different types of outcomes on the ground? 
what types of things did you end up being able to measure? Well, we did triangulation. Um, as you can imagine, you know, uh, the amount of money the Department of Defense gave us was not enough to do um, surveys in 176 countries. But what we did do is we combed the extant literature, we found uh, in-country non-governmental organizations that worked on women's issues. We looked especially for um, associations of women's uh, lawyers in those countries because they they really had a handle on how things actually played out, right? So, so yeah. custody decisions, right? There's one thing in the law, right? For example, if you look at the law of the United Arab Emirates, they actually have a law that says, you know, you gotta look at the best interests of the child. But you ask, you know, an Emirati lawyer, a woman lawyer, you know, what actually happens, you'll get a very, very different picture. Of course, there's also a national reports, like the every four years, the nation has to give a CEDAW report, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. There are also wonderful transnational NGOs, such as Equality Now, uh, Human Rights Watch, that have teams that look at the human rights of women in these countries. So we had a wide variety of sources from which we were able to triangulate what we thought was a good capture of what particular situations for women were like. So, um... I'm interested in another piece of this, which is maybe the overall trends for women globally. Mm -hmm. So over the time that you've been collecting the database, I think you said since 1995, mm -hmm. what what are the trends for for women? Is it is are the trends still positive and that's leading to more security? Is it a mixed picture of like regions across the world? Do we have times where women are doing well and then something happens and women are doing more poorly? Could you tell me a little bit about what is the kind of trending situation for women? Well, it's kind of all of the above. So if, again, if you wanted to go to that 10,000 foot level, we could say that over the past quarter century, there's been some clear improvement for women. First of all, in primary school enrollment. When we first started collecting the data, um, you know, women's enrollment as a percentage of men's enrollment in primary school was like, you know, 60 to 75% right in in most continents of the world now it's virtually one-to-one -one, no matter where you look so that gap has closed almost completely now I want to nuance that by saying that that's enrollment rates it's not survival rates and the the gap now in secondary education right is the gap that the the world is is the international community I think is working on a maternal mortality has plummeted uh, it's really been amazing. Of course, the nation that is responsible for that plummeting of maternal mortality rates is actually China, which has done an incredible uh, amount of work to reduce its maternal mortality rates, which affects global mortality rates. But even in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, we see some significant but not as drastic uh, decreases in maternal mortality. Uh, I think, again, at the 10,000-foot level, we see much greater participation of women in national legislatures. Um, sometimes that's artificially imposed. Uh, what's ironic for my students is to realize that the U.S. imposed quotas on Iraq and Afghanistan that we ourselves have not even reached in the United States of America, which is kind of funny. <laughs> Um, but I think you've also, um, you know, rightly pointed out that there's regress for women. The Arab uh, Spring was no spring for women. <laughs> it was a winter for women. Uh, with the possible exception of Tunisia, women's rights have been absolutely devastated in places like Libya. 
all right, and uh, Syria and, and um, uh, other places uh, where um, these autocrats were overthrown, leaving an anarchy that then brought us back to the old style, right, of organizing a country, which is top men, men, women. <laughs> and, pets, I mean, and yeah, maybe yeah. pets underneath <laughs> that. So yeah, it's, it's really a mixed bag. So one of the things that's been really sad to say is that when when democracy advocates sort of, you know, suggest that there should be a, you know, regime change, they're not thinking about the effects on women because what we've seen is that regime change leads to stunning regress for women. So this relationship that we, we pointed out earlier, which is like increasing, increasing in opportunities for women leads to increase in security for the nation state. So the, the sort of reverse of that or the opposite causal story also plays out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Where when security is kind of taken away either through regime change or through some type of conflict, uh, things deteriorate for women in those nation states as well. So it goes yeah, both ways. Yeah, absolutely. It goes both ways. What's interesting, of course, is if you take a millennial look, and what I mean by millennial is if you take as your unit of analysis, thousands of years. So knock on me right? being the millennial. Right, <laughs> exactly. If we, if we take the, the point of view from not just 10,000 feet, but from, you know, uh, thousands of years, it, it's absolutely true that no, those nations which first stabilized, which first moved towards things like democracy and capitalism, uh, such as in Northwestern Europe, all of that was preceded by unprecedented changes in the relationship between men and women within the household unit. So, for example, Northwestern Europe, which was the cradle of democracy and capitalism, was also the very first place in all of human history that had post-pubescent marriage rates for girls, and that prohibited polygyny, and that prohibited female infanticide. So I mean, so fascinating. Property rights for women. The church insisted on property rights for women because widows gave their money to the church, right? So the Catholic Church made this incredible series of changes for women that totally changed their position on the ground, totally changed the marital relationship from a 14-year-old married to a 34-year-old to a 22-year-old married to a 24-year-old. Yeah. And so to, you know, the households were beginning to practice democracy, partnership, entrepreneurship in a way that they had never had in the entire history of the world. Uh, so from that millennial view then, we can say that the causal arrow first and foremost is improve the lot of women and then watch and see what happens to your country you'll have these salutary changes. But you're absolutely right that when things go to pot, right, women are going to suffer, you know, uh, disproportionately to men in terms of their rights and status. It's so interesting that it was like a, essentially a precursor to, you know, the, the Enlightenment in some ways and the spread of democracy and capitalism. I did not know that. And that's, uh, that's, that's really fascinating. That's the book, right? That's the book. It's called The First Political Order. How Sex Shapes Governance and National Security Worldwide. Oh, all right. Well, I'll have to read it when it comes out. Oh, you have to read it, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we just got our first two cover blurbs, and one was from Gloria Steinem, and the other was from Ambassador Ryan Crocker. So we think it's going to reach a much larger audience than the typical academic uh, audience that we would usually hope to reach.
Yeah, I think Gloria Steinem has a pretty big following and strong <laughs> name recognition. Um, so uh, we, we talked about some of the progress that, some of the clear progress for, for women. What are some of the challenges left? And we've, mm-hmm. we've talked about some re- regression, oppor- uh, regression opportunities. Ah, regression. Regression challenges. Valerie's work has presented uh, numerous <laughs> regression opportunities to all sorts of students. I uh, shouldn't be allowed to, to speak in sometimes. So stat, what are some stat of the... Stat jokes. <laughs> What are some of the places where we're seeing either new barriers or consistent challenges where the progress has really slowed that people should be paying attention to? All right. Well, we've already talked about the Arab uprising nations. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, we've covered that. But I think one of the things that most people don't know is uh, that we, we think that history is bending towards that arc, right, of greater, you know, happiness and, you know, so forth for everybody, justice for everyone. Um, But consider the following. When we first started our work in the mid-90s, there were five, count them, five nations that had abnormal sex ratios, and uh, three of them were Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Macau. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And um, today we have 19, and they're not relegated to Asia. So we have Albania, we have places like Georgia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, uh, we have a wide variety of nations that are now culling girl infants from the birth population through sex-selective abortion. It it's also involves other nations that, that you would be like, what? So, for example, Vietnam now has a worse birth sex ratio than China does. Really? Yeah, really. So you did a lot of work on Chinese demographics back in the 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Has China's, China's uh, the sex ratio in, uh, in China has gotten back toward 50-50 now? No, 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 not in the least. But no. what we have seen is that the velocity of worsening, mm. uh, that's, there's probably a better term for that, but it was going up precipitously. And what we found is it's now, it's slowed and it's leveling off. But it's leveling off at around 115 boy babies per 100 girl babies, okay. right? It, 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 but we don't expect to see that reduced considerably since, yes, even though the one-child policy is gone, the two-child policy still does not eliminate um, sex selection. Because if the first child is a boy, you will probably be indifferent about the sex of the second child. But if the first child is a girl, oh my gosh, that second child is absolutely positively going to be a boy. And so that means you're going to get higher than normal uh, sex ratios, even with the two-child policy. And, um, you know, the, the Chinese government actually has a statistic that we can't confirm. But since they're the Chinese government, they ought to know better than we. We think there's probably 32 million surplus young males to females in China. The Chinese government is now saying over 50 million. Over 50 million. I mean, that's bigger than the entire population of Taiwan. What's the age range? This would be the 15 to 44 range. 15 to 44. Yeah. That seems bad for Yeah, we're actually, right now, one of my students and I are doing a project on flows of women, 
You may recall uh, Ross Perot talking about the giant sucking sound of how Mexico was going to take jobs. Well, I, that's I think someone nothing. else has taken up that. Oh, how <laughs> the giant more sucking recently sound. than Ross Perot, but oh, yeah, go ahead. yeah, the giant yeah. sucking sound yeah. that nobody talks about is the giant sucking sound of these immense um, societies with a huge dearth of women. So the sucking sound of all the women coming to China, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, all the women coming to India, the women coming to Taiwan and other places, is a, a huge mega trend that nobody is looking at. Where, where, where are those uh, cross-border movement of women? Where into these societies with with the abnormal sex ratios? Where are they coming from? What 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 are the the exporting countries, so to speak? Wonderful, yeah. Um, our project centers on Taiwan because they have the most available statistics. Yeah. The Chinese government does not publish right. these statistics. So for Taiwan, uh, the number one place, of course, is China, right? So right. about half of all foreign brides are coming from the mainland. Language, and, but yeah. then a fairly so, close so, second so, is so, Vietnam. So the Indonesia. The, the brides are coming from the PRC into Republic of China. Okay. And of course, that means that the Republic, that, People's Republic of China, is losing, is more, losing women. more women. Vietnam's the worst case. I just told you that their birth sex ratio is now worse than China's, mm -hmm. but they're also hemorrhaging women, right? Mm. There's a huge chattel market sending Vietnamese women to these abnormal sex ratio countries like China and like Taiwan. Uh, and as a result, Vietnam is actually completely sort of denuding itself of all women. So <laughs> whether it's at the beginning or at the middle. Literally kind of a mail-order bride thing. Yes, absolutely. Or kidnaps, the, and, of course. Right, There's kidnapping, right, right. too. And the, the, the Vietnamese government encourages this, does nothing about it. Does the, nothing about it, which is why we're yeah. writing this article, which yeah. is to try to say, have you guys considered right, that's, what you're doing to your really nation? That's really strange because, I mean... Knowing nothing specifically or in depth about Vietnam, one gets the impression that that you know the way Vietnam has moved up the value chain in the world economy is that Vietnamese women have entered the workforce in enormous numbers. And High yet, labor force participation in Vietnam, and yet, it's still a communist country. And yet they're hemorrhaging women. Hemorrhaging women at the birth time period and also at the young adult wow. time period. How about North Korea? One would assume that women would want to get out of North Korea. Yeah. In fact, one researcher quipped to me that actually North Korea's largest export is, is women, is women. Yeah. To, to People's Republic of China. However, as you can imagine, there's no figures. Right. We, right. we really have no figures. But we know from people who are on the ground that this cross-border traffic happens. So it might actually be the case that North Korea is also a country with an abnormal Yep. Sex ratio. We believe it is. Now. Right. We absolutely believe it is, but we can't prove it. Right. So, how do we do here at home? How does the U.S. compare to other countries in the way we treat women? And what, is the, what does the picture look like for the U.S. relative to some of the other players? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I get this all the time. Um, there are some who who believe, you know, that it must be very good, but the problem is, is we're awash in violence towards women. 
and so uh, on any scale that we have that looks at levels of violence against women, the U.S. comes out looking pretty bad, actually. We're not as bad as places like Afghanistan, right? But we're certainly bad than, say, comparable countries in Europe. Um, but I want you to know that there's a there's um, a, a, a basement level, if you will. That is, we have not found any country in the world, including in Scandinavia, where the the rates of violence against women, that is, lifetime, um, a, you know, sort of physical uh, or sexual abuse of women, is lower than one in five. Sweden has one in five. Uh, and there are some researchers who say that the actual figure is one in four. So, there's... so even in Sweden, one in five women over the course of their lifetime can be can expect to be assaulted. That's right. At least once. That's exactly right. And so, you know, if that's our very, very best country in the world, that suggests that there's this sort of standing reservoir to bring back sort of all these ancient ills and evils like sex selective abortion which ironically is not illegal in Sweden at all. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we suggest that violence against women is, is one of the big factors that has to be countered in order to safeguard against the kind of regression that we've seen in other nations. So I grew up uh, white male um, and rural. I, I don't know if our podcast listeners would have, would have known that. <laughs> that but, yeah. And I grew up in uh, northwest Georgia, kind of in the base of the Appalachia. And I remember discovering in college, so I had no, no violent acts perpetuated on me ever, really, unless I was engaged in it in some level myself. And I started, I, I had a lot of female friends, and you would, as you get closer and feel more comfortable sharing things, I was shocked. Uh, now, this was like in, on a college campus and within a subgroup of uh, people, so I was always curious how, you know, I was always like a good scientist worried about how well my anecdotal observations generalized. But my own assessment of the women that I knew in college were that, you know, half had experienced some yeah. serious sexual assault yeah. um, and, and some like real meaningful degree. Now, function some of this is I, I worked in bars and so oh, that uh, I think occurrences are even more common in those situations than others. But I was just shocked at the amount of of women that I interacted with that had like a serious violent encounter and that was sexual in nature. Yeah. And it was just like un, unreal to me. And they also have very different lives than you do. Mm -hmm. One of the most interesting things that I do in my class, Women and Nations, which is the foundation course for our concentration, is especially when I have several men in class, I'll sort of ask them questions. Like I'll say, okay, so it's after hours in the Bush School and for some reason you need uh, to take the elevator and the doors open and there's a guy in there, do you get in the elevator? And they're like, well, sure. And I turn to the girls and I say, would you get in? not a single woman would get in that elevator, right? Mm -hmm. And then I asked them, so you're going to your car, you know, after the sun is set. And they're like, yeah, so I go to my car after the sun is set. So I turn to the women, I say, how do you go to your car? And they're like, well, first I actually look outside to see who's standing outside. I take my keys and I put them between my fingers. I open up my cell phone so that if there's an emergency, I can quickly dial. And then I almost run to my car. I walk as fast as I can. I'm looking all around. I get in the car. I immediately lock all the doors. 
I mean, it's like, it's a totally separate life. It is a completely different life experience. And actually, one of my students said, oh, this is sort of like that famous scene in the Bourne movies. I don't know if you're a fan of Jason Bourne, but there's a scene where he's sitting down in this cafeteria with the uh, German lady that he's picked up and, and he's like, I know which of the people at that bar, you know, is possibly going to attack me. I know how fast I can run and for how long. I know, you know, which car, you know, is, is and, and, and he's like, how do I know all that? And my students are like, because you're a woman. You're a woman. You go, you know where the exits are. You know who you have to keep an eye on, right? You know what's out there in that parking lot. You know how fast you can run. You know how to kick your stilettos off. And, you know, it's a totally different life. And I think, you know, what we're missing, I think, is sort of acknowledgement from those who have, you know, power in our society that there's a, this, this completely different kind of life. Yeah. We would do things so differently. Our urban planning would be differently. How we arranged our space even would be different. Things would be different if I think if the life experience of women was taken into account. And you, and you can just sort of, I mean, we don't need to really go to the point too far, but maybe, but you can just, you can see it, right? And then once as a, as a male, it took me a long time to see it. And then now, to your point, you see it everywhere, right? And in, a, in any conversation with a female friend, you, it, it, you know, if you build a trusting relationship, these things come up with some regularity. And it's just shocking to me still, after several years of exposure to this and having a wife and sharing some of these stories with her and her, some of the stories she shared with me, the degree to which, you know, to your point, when Greg and I head out to Uncork to do our re recording, we're just kind of talking and talking about the day. I don't, I don't once, not one time, think about, am I in harm's way? Uh, and even as a, a bartender and the times that I spent uh, working in that industry, uh, which was, was such a clear example of some of this, I never felt unsafe working at the bar, even by myself, amazing. right? That's absolutely and amazing. It's just completely, this was one of the like really clear examples because the female bartenders had to have a male on uh, on, on the staff, payroll, on yeah. staff at that same time, whereas I could go and have the bar open and closed by myself. I didn't even think anything about it um, as being something I should be worried about. Mm -hmm. and it was like, here was just a clear, uh, within an organization so clear that the harms for women are so much more intense that they needed another coworker. Whereas when I was there, they didn't, there wasn't a need for the other coworker. And you know, there's unforeseen consequences. Also, just even think of the life of an academic. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there are, are are trips that my male students can take that my female students would have to think more than once or twice about. And maybe their parents would have to agree. You know, I mean, there's opportunities, I think, that are lost in field work uh, because you are a woman and you are not a man. Well, and, and it's interesting, too, how some of the, the social pieces play out, particularly with, you know, men traditionally being in power. And so like with a with a male student. It's much easier for an, uh, to interact with a male professor in a informal setting, mm -hmm. whereas there are there are barriers for and concerns yep. for women to be interacting with males in uh, in places of power in those informal settings. Whereas, like, I don't think anything about interacting with a male colleague who's in power. It's just kind of talking, carrying on like I would with other males. It's a completely different interaction, and this plays out. I mean, I learned from. <laughs> Uh, friends in my PhD program, female friends, when we were going through our PhD program, and it was just so stark. It was like, yeah, I could go have a beer with such and such professor, and my female colleagues like, 
Justin, I can't do that. That's and I was right. like, oh, yeah, you, you can. Yeah, and think, <laughs> think about it, you know, not, not here at the Bush School, but at my last university, um, our department chair uh, basically would go to the weight room with his buddies on the faculty, and that's where the important business of the department was done in the weight room of the gym right? Am I supposed to go and lift weights with the boys at the gym? I, no, I mean, it's just crazy. And they'd go out on camping trips together, right? Or they'd have a fantasy football league. I mean, all of this sounds really innocuous, right? Mm -hmm. And it is on one level. It's innocuous. Mm -hmm. I don't hold it against them for wanting to fraternize. But think about what it does to the females in the department who cannot be involved in any of those activities you know and so i think we're we're starting to see that you don't have to be overtly sexist to be exclusionary right you can just be oblivious to how your normal activities right would rule out the participation of women and it fits with your your broad argument in uh, for the program and with the, the data has found right in my own life right having women in the room makes a difference yeah, absolutely and so for Research example for me until i had close women uh, colleagues and close women friends, yeah. these things were not part of my world. I, was, yeah. I wasn't aware of them. And so just having women in the room at this micro level is an, just other examples or additional evidence of how that can lead to more security and better performance and more and, be and better decisions. I mean, what's, what's yeah. fascinating is I'm not a sociologist, I'm a political scientist, but there's now a large corpus of research that shows that when you have a certain level of participation of women at the table, no matter what table it is, you get a different decision, right? And what's striking is that people come away from that decision feeling much better about the decision when women have participated. And the decision is much less likely to be a zero-sum decision where somebody's won and somebody's lost, but it tends to be much more uh, commutarian. And thirdly, risk is handled better, right? Uh, the natural, natural risk averseness of females, which is not genetic, but which comes from a lifetime of dare I even get in the elevator, right? Is kind of, uh, you know, a complement to the more uh, overconfidence that one often sees from men. So if you want to handle risk well, uh, and, a, and a fourth thing is that uh, when you have men and women in sizable proportions in your group, they actually come up with more creative solutions to difficult problems because you're harnessing two vastly different life experiences when you do so. So at least on those four levels, if you want to make good decisions, you absolutely need a decent representation of women at the table. And that's one of the reasons I was really excited to come to the Bush School because about a third of our faculty are women. Mm -hmm. And that was certainly not the case. One tenth of the faculty were women at the university I came from in my department we're, yeah we're getting we're getting close to I think our, our mm -hmm. time here but let me let me take it back to to the women's stats project and and the work you're doing you you mentioned earlier and I just want to uh, the the listeners to know you got a, a a really substantial grant from the Department of Defense under the Minerva project and so a, a lot of your work on 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 gender and and, and women peace and security is is funded by the United States Department of Defense, the, whose job it is to go out and fight these wars. So uh, can you tell us and, and the listeners, when you go and you brief these folks, right, who, who, ha who have been funding the research, what kind of questions do they ask? How do they react to the, the findings? And what do you think has, uh, how have the findings maybe changed something in the, in, in the public policy realm? 
Well, I can't speak to the how it's changed things in the Defense Department, to be right. perfectly honest with you. Uh, I do know that our research is used quite a bit by, in places like the State Department and USAID to justify investment in, in women, not simply as something to promote economic development, but as something that can stabilize society. So I, I know that our work has had that impact. The Defense Department is fascinating um, that you should ask this question. Uh, and I'd like to make two observations. One is that the Defense Department still does not yet know how to use the research that they've paid for through the Minerva Initiative that's done by academics. They're still struggling to figure out how they get the message inside the Pentagon building. To the extent that I've been able to talk to military groups within the Pentagon about our findings, uh, I think most of them are voluntold to come to the briefing. And they're like, oh, some PC nonsense about women. And then we start actually getting into our findings and they start sort of waking up. And then some of them who've had field experience in Iraq or Afghanistan are like, I've seen that, I've seen that. When bride price starts going up, I know something's gonna happen, right? Because there's gonna be so much more grievance and you know, people are gonna be searching for money and the Taliban gives hard cash for bride prices. You know, talk they a start bit about, wake up about that. Talk a little bit about the findings on bride price. Yeah, well, well, you know, something I think a lot of Americans don't know is that in for about 75% of the people on the planet, uh, you have to actually give money to get married. Right, this is the reverse of the dowry. Right, so many people would think of India where it's the bride's family that gives the groom family money for the marriage to take place. Kind of the traditional dowry that, you know, you read about in Old, olden yeah, days. Old and, Europe. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but bride price is far more prevalent. And bride price is where it's actually the groom's family that gives the bride's father a significant amount of money to get married. And so if you looked at a map, you would be absolutely surprised how many countries have this bride price tradition. But it acts as a flat tax on the young men of the society uh, because there's a going rate for a bride, right? So it doesn't matter if you're poor doesn't matter if you're rich, if you want a bride, you're going to have to pony up this certain amount of, of money. And in some cases, it might be ponies. And it might, or, or camels, <laughs> camels, right? Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, or, or, or horses, or, right. you know, maybe actually be livestock, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's a, a huge amount of money. And what's even worse is that every father is watching every other father waiting to see how much money he got for his girl. And if he got a little more, then they're going to ask even more. And you can see how that price begins to bubble in an inflationary sense, and it can bubble irrationally and swiftly. So around the time of the independence of South Sudan, right, bribe prices went through the roof. They went up 1,200%. And so when people say, well, what happened to South Sudan since it had its... Well, I can tell you part of the reason, right, is that young men can't get married and so they are looking for any source of income uh, whether it be from the guerrilla groups whether it's raiding uh, nearby tribes to get the livestock to marry you know it's totally destabilized the society that's why places like saudi arabia actually attempt to cap bride prices uae right? does that too. uae does that too you can only ask this much uh, and you can only feed this many people at the wedding, right? Only 600 instead of, you know, 1,600. 6, yeah. Right. So uh, they, they see how it destabilizes the society. But I think we in the West 
don't know that. So in the Defense Department hears, one of the things your commanders in the field need to be tracking is the trajectory of bride price. They're like, oh, in fact, I had someone from Kabul actually email me and said, I just read your article, you know, two months ago. One of the local chiefs came to see me and said, wedding costs are completely out of hand. And we were like, oh, yeah, it's like that in the U.S. too. You know? <laughs> it just it's cost so much yeah, money. Yeah, People yeah. want doves. You know, I mean, and he's like, no, you don't understand. Wedding costs are totally out of hand in my district. And we were like, yeah, okay, <laughs> good luck with that. Yeah. And we didn't get it. Yeah, and, yeah. She, and she wrote to me, we didn't understand what he was trying to say. But you have now given us a vocabulary to say, this is a security issue. Yeah. This isn't just an issue of you know weddings and women and whatever. This is destabilizing our society. So I think we've made some impact. Yeah, I think it's really uh, smart. The and I guess impressive the way that you've tied women's issues to security to get people's attention. I don't know if that was the goal or not, but it's a really that no, was the goal of the Minerva project. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just really. I mean. It feels like we should be able to just make the ethical argument, but from like a realist perspective, that doesn't always play out. And so I like that uh, one of the ways that you brought it back to the realist perspective is say, look, not only is this uh, potentially a good ethical thing, but it makes the nation state more safe and secure, which is things that nation states care about and people within them care about. Maybe they don't care about women intrinsically always, but they do care about the sustainability and security of their nation state. Well, I think Greg already knows that I, I give a presentation in which I ask, can you actually be a realist if you don't see these linkages? And the answer is absolutely not. How can you possibly call yourself a realist if you're unwilling to look at the real linkages that we have found? Yeah, that's great. So we're at about, uh, about the 45 minute mark. Is there anything related to the program or your work that we didn't get an opportunity to highlight that you would like to share or did we, did we do it, did we cover it? I think we covered it. I think we have uh, something I would like to point out is that our Women, Peace and Security program is growing. We have lots of interest. The students have now taken it upon themselves to host events and speakers and film showings. And so I think, you know, this is kind of a little center of enthusiasm within the Bush School. And I know that it helps our students also when they look for jobs. For example, USAID, you can't even apply for a USAID grant unless you have gender advisors on your staff and you have a gender analysis component of your proposal. So our program prepares our students for those kinds of roles. I know of at least one student that, uh, it's a former student of mine as well, who uh, talked glowingly of you and some of your research was Mitra Miran, who oh, is yeah, of course. Uh, who's back in yeah. Afghanistan and very, um, very uh, is arguing the importance of keeping women at the table in the peace process talks right now in That's Afghanistan, right. and she's been uh, quite vocal about it. And so uh, we were very privileged to educate her here at the Bush School. We? She's, mean, she's going to do wonderful. tremendous things for her society. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming yeah. and talking. Thanks, with us Valerie. Yeah. This has been a lot of fun, and uh, we'll have to find an excuse to do it again sometime. Well, and now we're on hiatus. Yep. For for the summer. Yep. But we will be planning. And, and coming out hopefully sometime in August with a, a slate of podcast guests for, for the fall semester of 2019. And uh, we'll be back to downtown Bryan, mm-hmm. certainly at Uncorked and maybe to some other locations. We're, we're going to be discussing that with the folk uh, in the city of Bryan. 
who have expressed an interest to to host uh, Bush School uncorked at various locations. Yeah. Right? We're not we're not we're not saying that our friends at downtown uncorked <laughs> or, that we have any problems with them. We love them, but uh, it would be interest. It will be interesting to see how we can expand the the audience through uh, through cooperation with the the uh, the uh, the municipal authorities in Bryan. Yeah, yeah. And thank you so much to those of you that have been uh, listening along. It's been a lot of fun hosting and getting to talk with some of our colleagues about what they do and talk about some of the interesting things going on in the Bush School and have uh, have conversations. It's really uh, a pleasure and a treat to get to get to do this with some of our time. So thanks for hosting with me, Greg, and thanks for being our uh, final guest for this first season, uh, Dr. Valerie Hudson. Thank you. Have a good summer, everybody. See you in the fall.